And here we are, we find ourselves in uh, continuing our study in the book of Proverbs. Today we are in Proverbs chapter 6, which is page 629 in your pew Bibles. Before we get into that, will you just please pray with, pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you stand exalted this morning and every morning as Lord over all your creation. Praise you, Father, because you are the author of life. You are the author of our salvation. Praise you, God, because you are the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We praise you because you reign from your mighty throne. God, we thank you and praise you that you say that you love us with a rich and an everlasting love. And neither there is nothing that can separate us from that love that we see exerted in Christ. And Father, we thank you that we also know that you see our hearts. God, that you see us this morning where we really are. You see the burdens that we carry. You see the joys that we have. You see the healing that we need. You see the anxiousness in our hearts. We thank you, God, that though we are, the heart is deceitful above all things, and that we are so apt to deceive ourselves, that you were able to see us for who we truly are. We pray, Father, that you would work in our lives by your Spirit, through your Word, in order to make us more completely the people of God you would have us be. We thank you for Proverbs. We thank you for how we've learned from it, how we've grown from it, how we've been challenged by it. We pray that you would continue that good work to the glory of your name. Christ in me pray. Amen. Well, you know, we're in the middle of the study here in Proverbs, and the first half we found ourselves focusing on the character of God as he is revealed in the book of Proverbs. And now in this the second half of the series we've been in that we're, we're sitting on today, we find ourselves looking at the characteristics of a godly person. And so here we are in Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. You don't know if you can think of in your mind the strangest teacher you've ever had. I think we've all had, had it at one point or another. Maybe it was in kindergarten, maybe it was in graduate school, maybe it was somewhere in between. But I think most of us have had a teacher that we walked away and said, well, they meant well, but they're a little odd. And, and I think it's kind of odd this morning that God is trying to direct our attention to an ant of all things. That creature that, when we were boys, for those of us in the room were, we used, um, you know, magnifying glasses to burn and destroy. Or if you were me, used a whole pot of boiling water, because I'm German and I'm over the top. An ant is an odd teacher, but that's what God is trying to get our attention to focus on this morning to learn and grow from. We see this proverb here exalting diligence, exalting hard work in labor, and criticizing laziness. And if, if, so if, as we approach this text this morning, if you're someone like me who has in past time in my life made a living out of procrastinating, 
out of putting a, a C or D effort in most things in life, then perhaps you will be convicted. I think there's three things I'd like us to see here this morning specifically. Number one, laziness is a spiritual problem. Number two, labor is a spiritual activity. And number three, diligence in all matters is part of worship. Laziness is a spiritual condition. You know, I think many of us, we consider laziness to be something other than the Bible reveals it to be. We, we, think, we think it's a personality problem. You know, there's that person that we know that from cradle to grave, they're always driven. They're always driven to excel whether in sports, whether in school, whether at their job, whether just in being a good, reliable friend, they are always driven and are always doing their best. And then there's that other person we know that it seems like from the, the, the moment they, were, or, or they arrived on this earth, they just wanted to hang back. They're, they're just lazy. They just don't work hard. They're always doing what they want to do and not what they're supposed to be doing. And so we tend to think, well, maybe it's a personality problem. You know, for, for those other of us, especially the older people in the room, that sometimes we look at laziness as an age problem. We look at younger people and we, you know, we see how they do what they want to do and not what they're supposed to be doing. And we say, will you stop being so lazy and childish? And, 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 we, and then we see someone in their 20s or 30s or dare I say 40s doing the same thing. We say, will you just grow up as if somehow laziness is a matter of age? Yet here as we go through the book of Proverbs, as we look at the sluggard as how he is portrayed in verse after verse, I think we begin to, begin to get the picture that it is much more than a personality problem. It's much more than an age problem. It is a spiritual problem. As we go through on the surface here in, in chapter 6, we see this ant is just diligent. He's just consistently doing what needs to be done when no one's looking at him. He doesn't need a parent, he doesn't need a teacher, he doesn't need a boss to remind him of his or her responsibilities. He just does it. And, and we see on, on a very surface and physical level, there's the obvious byproduct of that. He works hard, therefore he eats. And so the implication is, hey, if you're, if you're really lazy, well, you're not going to have anything to eat. He who doesn't work doesn't eat, as the scriptures say. But as we let Scripture interpret Scripture and go into other texts within Proverbs that feature the sluggard, we get a much more fuller description. So I'm just going to race through a few texts here. I, you don't feel the need to look up each one. We're going to sit on them only momentarily. Proverbs 10.26, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. You know, we can all remember that time at some point in our lives, perhaps recently, when, you know, there's this group of people and we were around a campfire and there was this big circle and the smoke was coming up and then there's always that group of people that keep moving because, you know, the wind blows in this direction or that, it carries the smoke with it and all of a sudden you just get the smoke that's in your eyes, you're crying, you feel uncomfortable, you start to gag and you're like, I've got to move. The lazy person makes the rest of us want to move. And it makes us want to get out of the way. We don't want to be near them because they make us sick. They make people sick because of their inherent laziness. It's like smoke in the eyes. One who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. Proverbs 18.9 You know, that person that just continually does a minimal effort 
in areas in their life, in many areas in their life, that is brother to the person that breaks things. The person that breaks things is very closely related to the person that just doesn't work very hard to create things. They're, they're united. And, and this verse I'd invite you to look up, Proverbs 23, no, excuse me, Proverbs 26, starting in verse 13. Here I think we begin to see uh, the, the spiritual condition that gives rise to the sluggard's sluggardliness. And I don't think Noah Webster would say sluggardliness is a word, but Chris Hemrick says that it is, this morning at least. So Proverbs 26, starting in verse 13. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he is too lazy to bring it to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. Well, the first thing we notice here about the sluggard is they don't think they're a sluggard, which probably fits well with our experience. I bet you there are more people in this world who are lazy than who would admit they are lazy. I don't remember the last time I asked someone, you know, I was talking to someone, they said, you know, I'm really a lazy person and I'm in therapy right now to learn how to deal with that and accept that and embrace that about myself. No one, no one self-characterizes or self-identifies joyfully as a lazy person. They make excuses, don't they? They make excuses to justify their laziness. We see this guy saying, there's a lion out there. I better go back to bed. There is a lion in the streets. It's dangerous to be outside. I don't care about the sun shining and the birds singing. I'm going to go back where it's safe. Reminds me of a man I once knew who would come home every day, assume, give him the benefit of the doubt, he worked hard at his nine hours or so at work, he would come home, he would go, he would make himself a snack, sit on the couch, turn on TV, and wait while his wife, who had been taking care of their children all day, made dinner, cleaned up after dinner, washed the kids, put the kids to bed, and then he would join her. And, his, and, and he would never say, I'm lazy. He would say, hey, I worked hard today. Day after day after day. And on the weekend, he needed that time for a rest too because his job was so demanding. So she still needed to do everything. I can remember my own time, you know, prior to my conversion, where studying in school, I, I would get home and I would say, I've got plenty of time to do what I need to do. Plenty of time. I've got plenty of time. I'm not lazy. I just... I just have plenty of time. And so I would study, or not study, I would watch TV, I would talk on the phone, I would play video games, and then all of a sudden I'd ram my way through 30 minutes of schoolwork and be content with a one-point GPA semester after semester prior to my conversion. But I wasn't lazy. I'd just rather be doing what I wanted to do. That was my focus. And today as we see this great word picture of a sluggard going back and forth, like a door on its hinges. I mean, a door is made to sit on the hinges and go back and forth. So thereby we can infer that the sluggard is best and most at home doing nothing. The sluggard is most at home laying around in bed. And there in the first century, well not the first century, here we're in Proverbs, way before the first century, in the book of Proverbs, it, it might have been the bed that the sluggard found his rest in. Yet today that could just as easily be on the couch, on the phone, 
on the net. Anything that becomes our home instead of work being our home. Finally here in verse 16 we see, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. Can you see the pride, the arrogance inherent in the sluggard's attitude? I've got it all together. I've got it all figured out. I, I don't need to change. I don't need to work hard. I don't need to better myself. Hey, I've got it all. You know, and, and doesn't, that, doesn't that make sense? Because what the diligent person, I think, in many times, not all the times, is diligent because they are intensely aware of their own failing. They're intensely aware of their shortcomings as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a child, as a student, or as an employee. And that awareness of their own deficiencies motivates them to work towards excellence in all things because they know there's room for improvement. They know they can get better at their life. They know they can be better in whatever venue we're talking about. So they work hard, tirelessly, because they know despite their best efforts, there's still room for improvement. The sluggard thinks he's already arrived and thereby he limits himself. Proverbs 59 says, The way of the sluggard is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. So often the book of Proverbs retreated to these excellent contrasts in order to kind of help us see what God wants us to see. We see the wise person and the foolish person. We see the person, the righteous and the wicked. And here we see the lazy person, the person, again, who I think makes a living out of giving a medium effort, if that, on most things, and doing what they want to do rather than what they have to do. We see that person contrasted with the upright, thereby implying that laziness is by its very nature an affront to the living God. That if we are walking in a lifestyle of laziness, we are not going down the path that God has set before us. Laziness is a spiritual condition because there is a pride and an arrogance in the heart that underlies it. And we have to search ourselves to see which path are we going on, the path of the upright or the path of the sluggard. But you know, I think the question naturally arises, why? Why? You know, God, why is it such a big deal if I'm lazy? Why is it such a big deal if people would look at me and say I'm a slacker in whatever area that is? Why does God put such strong rhetoric on this idea of sloth? I think it brings us to our second point that helps us understand that, where we see that labor is a spiritual enterprise and activity. You know, there's nothing overtly pious about the ant. Thankfully. I mean, imagine if the application to the sermon was, okay, I want you to go home and I want you to stand on your hands and your feet and walk around and pick up pieces of dirt with your mouth. Hopefully you would all file out quickly. All right? You know, there's nothing overtly pious about what an ant does. It's the way of the ant that is prized in Scripture. It's not what the ant does. It's how the ant does it. It's not what, in and of itself what it does that's significant. It's the, quote, way in which it does what it does. It's the ant's work ethic. It's the ant's diligence. It's the ant's labor that is prized. And this is really quite significant because here we see God telling us that the way an ant does such a 
almost, I, think, I would say, disgusting menial task is, in a sense, virtuous. You know, there's a, um, a popular myth I th- that I, I think is quite popular today that has its roots way back to the origins of the church, that there is this divide between things sacred and things secular. That somehow like we live in a world of two categories where there's spiritual things and there's unspiritual things. We see a, you know, a small group of people in the, the life of the early church believing this, um, this Gnostic heresy that matter is evil and spirit is good. And that you know, things of this world, which is passing away, are just inherently corrupted and evil and bad. And spiritual things are somehow of a different, better category. And, and, and so we see this idea painfully played out in the, the life of, for example, Origen in the early church. This, um, this man who read the Bible and proclaimed to be a Christian, but he believed that sex, even within the bonds of marriage, was a wicked enterprise. Because matter is evil. He went so far as to castrate himself, to, you know, because he thought the flesh, the body, was evil. We see this idea carried through into the life of the medieval church where in many ways life was seen as having... There were two different classes of people. There were the people that devoted themselves to spiritual matters and there were people that devoted themselves to earthly, fleshly matters. And you were either in one of those classes of people and thereby you gained a different amount of value. Way back we see a quote here from Eusebius, the 4th century bishop, writing, Two ways of life were given by the law of Christ to his church. The one is above nature and beyond common human living. Holy and permanently separate from the customary life of mankind, it devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such then is the perfect form of the Christian life. And the other, more humble, more human, permits men to have minds for farming and for trade and other secular interests as well as for religion and a kind of secondary degree of piety is attributed to them. Were that true, where would that leave us today? I imagine if I asked how many people in the room are, are nuns or pastors or, or priests or engaged in some type of, or missionaries, I imagine the people who would raise their hands would be few in number. Eusebius is saying here this idea, this, this untruthful idea, that there are two classes of work that there is spiritual work and there is physical work, and the two do not touch each other at all. There is nothing in common with them. That, you know, the minute we stop praying, reading Scripture, leave this church, all of a sudden we are in the fleshly, physical enterprise that God doesn't care about. Thankfully, the Reformers attacked this view and worked indefatigably to dispel it as the lie that, and show that it is a lie. And that God, who created all things, who created our flesh, who created matter, who, as we will see, created work, gives us the opportunity to glorify and worship Him in every endeavor. Um, you know, as a side note, too, I think probably many of us in the room have been in a class or a lecture or in a conversation where we heard someone talk about the Puritans who worked very hard themselves to show that there is no sacred, secular divide, that all, everything is God's. Um, We've probably, many of us have been in a conversation where it's been, oh, the Puritans are nuts. And, and they just didn't know how to have fun and they were prudish and they hated you know, marriage and they hated sexuality. I, I've got a quote here that I think is very representative of the Puritans' views of, of, of marriage, of sex within marriage. 
It's by Thomas Gage. He writes that sex within the bonds of matrimony should be done with goodwill and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully. So for those of you that that applies, there you go. And um, for the next time you get in a conversation with someone that thinks the Puritans were prudish, remind them that the Puritans within marriage thought sex was a very good thing. Yeah, I suspect that there are some of us here today that we too are tainted by this sacred, secular division within our own thinking. That we think, again, that the minute we leave this, this building, that the minute we say amen, that the minute we close our Bible, that the minute we stop sharing the gospel with someone else, that all of a sudden our spiritual work is done. That when we punch the clock, when we hammer the nail, when we start teaching the kindergarten class, when we go to our secular profession, our time of worship has ended. I, can, um, I remember a good, a good friend of mine, a good example to me um, from seminary, one of my professors, he told the story about how he, um, when he and his wife, they had decided to be foster parents. And um, they end up adopting this foster child. And they had the grace within them to adopt a special needs foster child. She, she was bound to a wheelchair. She required them to lift her up out of her bed at night, to clothe her, to bathe her, to care for her in, in some really strenuous ways. And as this beautiful girl grew up, she naturally, like the rest of us, got bigger. And his wife could not do that anymore of her own. And I'll never forget when he shared with us how another brother in Christ asked him once about the time that he now had to spend home doing that away from the seminary. The brother said to him, it must be really hard spending so much time on us doing something completely unspiritual. It must be so hard on you to spend so much time away from the Word and discipleship on doing this physical matter. And thankfully, he had the grace and the courage and the faith to respond to this brother in Christ and say, when I love my daughter as Christ loves my daughter, when I bathe her and care for her, it is very spiritual. Yet we face the same temptation to fall, though perhaps not as far, into that man's idea. If we look back, however, the doctrine of the creation, the doctrine of being made in the image of God, we see very clearly how labor is a spiritual activity. Think of Genesis 2, chapter 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God put man in the garden to work it and take care of it. Man was made for the garden, not the garden for man. Think about that. I think a lot of us, we walk and we have this idea that Adam and Eve kind of swung in hammocks and drunk fruit-filled drinks in the garden every day. And that the only work they had to do was walk over to, to, you know, a tree, plop off some fruit and hang out and play canasta. I don't know. But man was made for the garden. Man was made to work. God said, here, I want you to dig. I want you to prune. I want you to rake. And that is dignified. That is valuable. That is noble. Because I told you to do it. 
You know, we, we often think that somehow work is this thing that we need to get out of. We can't wait to retire. We can't wait to move on because our work seems meaningless. It seems invaluable. It seems to be that thing that we've got to escape from. And I've talked to many Christians who err in thinking that work is a product of the fall. Work is not a product of the fall. Work precedes the fall. Toil and trouble in labor is a product of the fall. We can all relate to that. But labor is itself a dignified thing. We are called to be image bearers. We are image bearers of the Lord God. That in some strange and I think mysterious way, people are supposed to be able to look at us and we are to reflect the image of God. That somehow in us they would see the King of Kings. And does that surprise us then because we worship a God who works We worship a God who labored six days out of seven. Notice the proportion. We're not supposed to kill ourselves. But God labored six days out of seven. And I assure you this morning that God is working this very moment, like He expects you and I to be doing. God is not standing up in heaven counting a celestial clock saying, well, I can't wait till this is all done so I can go back and you know we can move on. Okay, angels, do another hallelujah chorus. The scriptures say that God is actively moving. We see the scriptures reveal to us that this very moment Christ is interceding on behalf of the saints. That this very moment God is looking at your life and at mine. He's looking at our struggles and our successes. He's looking at where we are and where He wants us to go. And He is praying prayers for us that we don't even know we have to pray. The scriptures say that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are attentive to their prayers which is to say that this very moment God is moving and hearing the prayers of countless millions of believers the world over and is moving. We see the Bible say here, if we look at the book of Acts, you know, the book of Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostles. I submit to you it would be better to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it's within that book that we see the Spirit of God indwell and empower man to bear good fruit for His kingdom. It's in the book of Acts that we see the Spirit of God bringing people to faith, sanctifying them in their faith, growing in them in their faith, working miracles, and accomplishing His sovereign purpose. God is a worker. We do not worship a lazy God. We worship a working God. And as His image bears, are we not made, designed, created to work in our proverbial garden, even as Adam was? If there's any doubt, if you don't move with me to Colossians chapter 3, I think we see this even more fully made clear. Colossians is in the New Testament. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So it's between Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. And here in this section, in the book of Colossians, we see Paul. He's writing to this church. And, and this verse that I'm about to read, interestingly enough, it takes place in a section of Scripture where Paul has just finished detailing relationships. He's just finished talking about how husbands should treat their wives and wives their husbands and, and parents their kids and kids their parents and slaves their masters. And so after this entire section where Paul is detailing about our relationships and how we are to treat each other, he says in verse 23, Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. 
It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So God is saying that our attitude as Christians should be that when we, that we are not just being a husband unto our wives, we are being a husband unto the Lord and need to acquit ourselves accordingly. Then when we are a student, we are not just a student unto our teacher or our parents or ourselves, we should be a student unto the Lord and acquit ourselves appropriately. Then when we are a, a parent, we are not just a parent unto the government or unto ourselves, but unto the Lord and need to acquit ourselves accordingly. For it is the Lord Christ you are serving. How much does such a view change the way we labor in all areas in our lives? How much more does it call us to which we would not give of ourselves or our own free will? You see, as, as we see this, we see this connection. Now we can understand why, pov- why laziness is a spiritual problem. Laziness is certainly a spiritual problem if God has called and ordained us to work. Because then when we are lazy, we are going the way opposite to what God has called. We are doing the exact opposite of what He tells us to do. Laziness is a spiritual problem for you and for I because God exalts us to work hard in every area as unto Him. Which brings us to our third point, that diligence in all matters is a part of worship. You know, it said in that first verse we looked at in Proverbs that if in fact you are lazy, that poverty will come upon you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. And I think it's really easier for us, for us to see that in a physical sense, that is very true. I am quite sure that if I just decided I was not going to come to work at South Shore Baptist Church anymore, I would probably stop getting a paycheck. I, perhaps the same applies to you. In the same way, though, there is a spiritual poverty that overtakes us when we are lazy. Think of the Colossians verse. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. An inheritance from the Lord as a reward for diligent Labor. You know, it's a slippery slope and it's a scary thing and we don't often talk about the degrees of the reward to the Christian in this life or in heaven to come. But I think Scripture does make it clear, I think the parable of the talents is a perfect example, that God will reward His children for diligence, for faithfulness, for the pursuit of His glory. And we see that here. And so there's a sense in which when we, are not, when we are lazy in our marriages, when we are lazy in our jobs, when we are lazy even as students, when we are not doing that labor as unto the Lord and working diligently night and day without having to be nagged, prodded, or cajoled, even as the ant doesn't, we risk a spiritual poverty that we could avoid with diligent labor. And I want to make a side point now, and um, this is a generalization, and by virtue then of the subject matter, it does not apply in all cases. The generalization is true a lot of the time, but not all of the time, right? 
And um, it is a stereotyping, which again is to say that it is true, I think, a lot of the time. I think I will make a case for it biblically and, and culturally, but it is not true all the time. I know there are many people in this church particularly that it does not apply to. But I offer this humbly, nonetheless. I think men are especially prone to laziness. I think we see this in the beginning of the biblical account in the Garden of Eden with Adam. We see that Adam and Eve are given the command of God to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As the scripture in the New Testament interprets for us, Eve is the one who is deceived, but the judgment especially falls on Adam. And it is because of his sin that the entire race falls into sin. And we see that it is Adam that is there, that she is the one deceived, but it is Adam that is there and eats the fruit with her. It is him that knew it was wrong. And I assert to you, was too lazy to confront her. Was too lazy to do the difficult work of confronting her with the truth and with righteousness and instead capitulated to avoid marital controversy. We see the same thing in in, in the book of Judges with Samson, where Samson, as we see towards the end of his life, is quite aware of the high calling to which God has given him. Samson is gifted in the book of Judges more than any other judge. The Spirit especially seems to rest on him in a very unique way. He's been given a high calling, and yet we see in his life him consistently frittering away that calling on sex, on drinking, on doing whatever he wants to do to satisfy his needs rather than putting himself out there and working diligently as God called him to do. Thank God that God fulfilled his purposes despite Samson's laziness. We see the same thing in the life of David, who is in so many ways a paragon of faithfulness. But where does sin creep in in David's life? When he fails to do what every king was supposed to do, he fails to go to war. He sends the army and he stays at home and that is when his sin with Bathsheba begins. When he is in the place that he's not supposed to be because he's probably too lazy to go there. Where does sin continue in David's life? When he fails, I believe, out of laziness to confront the sin of his children. When his daughter is raped, his son is murdered, all of this family strife happens, and David doesn't do anything. David takes the road more traveled, sits back, avoids controversy and confrontation, and stays and does nothing. And thereby the entire country is plunged into strife. Why is it in the history of the church, if we look at the history of the church, for the most part it is women who do the bulk of the work. It is women who in general are more serving, exercising their gifts in the life of the church, and not men. As you go and you do what I am a nerd and do, and you read about modern literature in the church today, you read about this crisis of manhood. That men, as, as literature will tell you, just don't come to church. And, and all too often when they do come, all they are is a body sitting in the pew taking up space, but not exercising their gifts, not exercising their responsibilities as a husband, as a parent, and as a servant of the living God. And this extends even far beyond the church. I recently read an article um, on Fox.com about how there is a current crisis in the educational system that very quietly is developing a form of action 
for boys. 70% of college students today apparently are girls, and that number is increasing. Very quietly, directors of admissions are having to reject able, qualified young ladies in order to maintain something of a, of a balanced gender ratio. And, and, and they said they were quite candid in the interview. They talked about how, yeah, just academically, school, uh, academically, extracurricular activities, sports, the average girl is significantly more qualified and driven than the average boy. The directors interviewed said, we just think boys today are lazy. They'd rather play video games than work hard. They're not driven. They're not envisioned. They're not, they don't have a sense of that God has called them to something, well, they didn't say God, to something greater. They're lazy. And if in fact it is true, as, as we believe in this church, that though God has gifted men and women each uniquely for His service, that in some special way God has called men to be leaders in the church of Jesus Christ, then what better tactic is it from Satan than to attack the men and fill them with laziness, selfishness, and idolatry and prevent them from being the men that the church of God needs today. We indeed are at a crisis. I was joyful the day I went down on Wednesday night in this church and saw so many men volunteering in the children's program. Because friends, Churches across the country in general, this does not happen. Men are absent. And even though, you know, we can look in the history of the church and say, well, even before, you know, the women's, even before the women's work movement really arose in our country and women just had to care for kids and home and everything else, somehow they were still the ones at the forefront. Even as in general they are today. We are at a crisis that men need to be men. I think the most ugly thing that I see is boys content to be boys and men wanting to be boys themselves. I'll get off my soapbox. There's some of us that are tempted to laziness because we feel that our work in and of itself is insignificant. We think there's nothing inherently dignified or special about hammering a nail or working on State Street, Main Street, or Wall Street. There's nothing inherently dignified or spiritual about teaching math, chorus, or being a counselor. There's some of us that work hard, but we work hard for our own glory. We, we, we're diligent because we want that corner office, we want that promotion, we want that recognition. And that's not what God's talking about here. There are some of us that avoid our responsibilities to, to family or to church because we work so diligently in one of the other venues. And workaholism is not what is being lifted up here in Scripture, nor is impure motives. Cotton Mather, again a Puritan, writes, A Christian should be able to give an account not only what is his occupation, but what he is in his occupation. It is not enough that a Christian have an occupation. He must mind his occupation as it becomes a Christian. So the question for us this morning is that if someone looks at us as a student, as an employee, as a parent, a spouse, or a child, do they see Christ in us? Do they see the way we are minding that occupation to which God has called us as if we were doing it unto Him?
rather than the direct person we're physically reporting to? Do they see Christ in us? I do not know what that would specifically look like for your job. That would be something to pray about and to meditate on. But I can tell you this for sure this morning. that When we work as unto the Lord, when we say, all right, I'm going to do that for God's sake. I'm going to try to do that in a manner which that would make God look down upon me with joy. That we are taking a great step towards faithfulness. Because laziness is, I think, quite clearly a spiritual condition. And until we identify it as such, we will simply continue to make excuses like the sluggard and lounge in our mediocrity and selfishness. Labor has been given dignity by God. Do not go back into this week thinking that that job you go to has no purpose just because you're not spending every 60 seconds every, of every minute talking about the Lord Jesus. There is dignity in work. If Adam can be dignified in putting his hands in the ground because God called him to be, then surely so can you and I if we do it as unto the Lord. Labor is a spiritual activity. And diligence in all things, whatever the venue we've talked about here this morning, is an opportunity for you and for I to give worship to our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I